Welcome to the Next Trip Podcast with Doug and Drew. This is an aviation and travel podcast covering current topics and trip reviews with multiple course deviations on our route. All thoughts and opinions are our own. Welcome to Boarding Pass 31, everyone. This is Drew, and I'm here with Doug. We're two avgeeks and aviation professionals creating a safe space for other avgeeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. Good day, everyone. We hope this episode finds you safe, healthy, and in good spirits. We're one week closer to this crisis being over, and we're staying positive and aviation tough. Uh, you guys, today, we're excited. We're joined by a special guest and top shelf av geek and photographer extraordinaire, uh, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren. Jeremy is a contributing writer at Runway Girl Network, among others, and has previously worked for Airways Magazine, Airline Reporter, and has been featured in NYC Aviation and USA Today. Welcome, Jeremy. We asked Jeremy to come on the show because we always love chatting with other av geeks, but mainly it's because of one of his articles that he wrote recently, which deals directly with our main topic today, which is ultra long haul flights. So Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I can't, uh, can't wait to talk a little bit about that and uh, some of the other stuff we got on today's, today's run list. So guys, if you don't follow Jeremy on Twitter or Instagram, you have to check him out. Incredible photos, Jeremy, uh, mostly aviation themed, but some of his other work is really great too. Uh, Jeremy, it's obvious that you're a major av geek, but uh, we have some questions. How does one go from political science to aviation to the zoo? If you could explain that to us. <laughs> well, the start was the economy. Uh, so gra- gra- graduating in 2006 or seven, two that I don't know, whatever that was. The originally my track was to be a lawyer, and av geek was just a fun thing to do on the side and drive down to Boston, Logan plane spot and stuff. But the program that I was headed for, uh, it was one of those, you you know, work for 10 years for the government and then you get your your degree paid off. That program did not pan out uh, mm. because the budget fell apart. And so off I went to move to Seattle, became a caseworker, and then started working with NYC Aviation and Phil Derner and Matt Molnar. And mm-hmm. we started a live news feed. Uh, my first assignment was the 787 Dreamliner first flight. Wow. And then went from there to three, four years with them and then started working with Chris Sloan and Archive, which merged with Airways Magazine late in my tenure. Okay. And went uh, freelance for two years uh, with USA Today and others. And then freelance is a tough life. <laughs> mm. yeah, constantly having to chase down bills and everything like that. So the zoo opened up an opportunity and started uh, working for the zoo in 2015 and moonlighting for USA Today and others up until very recently. So I have to ask, is the AvGeek experience more enjoyable as a freelancer or as someone on the books somewhere? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question because I've been thinking about that a lot lately as a lot of my work has shifted away from that there just there isn't a lot of money left in it to pay bills with and so for example i went on a, a trip in january to knock off a few plane types on a cheap uh, cheap j fare on klm i wanted the combi mm-hmm. and then iberia a346 with its daily london uh, uh madrid london and then uh we've been there for years and then the uh, what was the other one? Air Antwerp, the Poker 50. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. And so that was that was the trip, was uh, to, to head out there and, and do all those. And I didn't really have a deadline. I didn't have to turn it anything I didn't want to. They all ended up being articles for Mary Kirby and Runway Girl because at some point it's nice to recoup some of that. But yeah. the the experience was just 
just enjoying it and there wasn't any deadline. I don't have to turn it into anything if I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And there's something really nice about that after doing it for the better part of 10 years with deadlines and expectations to walk into experience and just let it be mm -hmm. and to just have it be what it is, is has was really nice. And I, it, I don't get that very often. And it's to have had that as a, as a full-time job off and on and a major component of paying bills, uh, even still, you start to run into like anything, the phrase like, you know, find your passion. You'll never day, work a day in your life. Right. Right. That, that is absolutely true. I would not change what I do for world uh, to, for anything in the world. I absolutely love it. The airplanes, the zoo, the whole nine yards, love everything about it. That said, it's it's work, and so there's things you begin to discover that you don't like. Like I hate bookkeeping. I mean, I like mm. the money, but I don't like <laughs> keeping track of it. Um, yeah. Hustling to to find more work and constantly having to come up with a pitch, that 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 becomes draining over time. It's 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 a lot of pressure. Well, Jeremy, what you just said, if you do what you love, you know, you'll, you'll be able to pay the bills. Um, for a while, I left the airport to go work in sales. A huge mistake. There was a lot of money to be made, but I'd rather make less money doing what I love because then when I go into work, I look at it, okay, I'm in my world. But if I'm in sales or if I'm in an office building, you know, doing charts or whatever, I'm really not in my world. So what is what's the advantage of doing something you don't want to do just for a paycheck? I'd rather make less and do, do something that I love. So I've had uh, a fair share of jobs that I didn't super love and moved on for, and they were useful in that they enabled me to do things like in college, drive to Logan airport and plane spot because it paid for <laughs> gas, but I love the job. No, I didn't. See, I, I, what you just said about driving to Logan, I, I think that that's what brings all of us ab geeks together is that we find those those things that we have to do in life that then enables us to do the things that we love, which is aviation on work trips. I go on non-flying work trips. I bring my camera along and I try and find the closest airport. And when I'm off the clock, just go and spot. And it's places that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do it if I wasn't on that work trip or lots of things like that. And I, I think that, as I said, that's one thing that brings av geeks together and that we're all alike in, in that, yeah, we that, that, that fashion. Yeah. So I was thinking, so, you know, for a couple of years, it was 100,000, 150,000 miles on the road, writing up assignments, going to air shows, pumping out content for, you know, this, that, and the other place. But the, the part that consistently remained cathartic was the two hours that I'd show up early at the airport and just shoot boring, straight side-on photos, you know, stuff that are mm -hmm. a dime a dozen, but yeah. it just made me made me happy because you could sit down and en and enjoy it. Is it, uh, or even better if, if I had a good six hours and I could plan out and think, gee, I'd really like that angle and that shot and let's hope we get lucky. Yeah. And that felt like borrowed time. Uh, even when working full time in aviation, that felt like borrowed time that didn't, didn't happen often. And I think that dovetails again into now that, um, especially during the pandemic, I'm not doing any flying. I haven't since mid March and I don't see that changing anytime soon, sadly that I find myself going back down to Boeing Field where it really started flourishing and just sitting around and shooting whatever happens to come in. And I haven't, I haven't done that in a decade, not yeah. a lot in a decade. That feels really good. Well, even then, you, you've been really, uh, really active posting old photos on Instagram mm -hmm. and, and Twitter. And so having that library of photos that you've taken of aviation throughout the, the years, 
I, I'm sure you feel the same way I do when I go back through all my old pictures is you're reliving those experiences and you're mm-hmm. able to, right. to see them again. And so, as you said, those boring dime a dozen side on shots, sometimes when you're taking those, you don't realize what you're capturing. Like I, I can go back through my, my library and I can find first flights or final flights of, of registration numbers or airlines that don't even exist anymore that at the time you didn't, you didn't think anything of it. And so even now those dime a dozen photos, I, I take dozens of those, uh, hundreds of those, because you never know in another 10 years what, what you might've captured at the time, especially now that it's not film. Now that it's digital, shoot away. That's, that's what I say. Yeah, absolutely. I've been going back through all the way back to 2005. so like a keyword, everything, because, uh, I didn't do that like I should have, but editing continental 737 500 photos uh if you had asked 2007 me if that would be exciting mm. no they're a dime a dozen <laughs> they come in every you know every hour one replaces the other from yeah. three different hubs but now i'm thrilled to to crop that out and add that to the 43,500 photos that i've got <laughs> yeah. yeah you know this whole digital when i was taking pictures it was just a regular camera with negatives no digital but if i could go back and find those negatives of tristars mm-hmm. and dc10s and dc8s oh my goodness so let's get to business we have a lot to cover today we want to get to our ultra long haul discussion with jeremy so let's quickly get to the news briefs uh, we'll start in pakistan the aircraft accident investigation board released its preliminary report on the crash of pia 8303 uh, that's the airbus a320 that crashed in karachi last month it took the lives of nearly 100 people doug so you're the pilot here uh, do you want to take the lead on this recap yeah as we mentioned in a few episodes the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder were both recovered and the data was intact they were sent to france on june 1st and they were reviewed by the Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for the Civil Aviation Safety, which is an arm of the French government. And the report was l- released on Wednesday in English to the public. Let me tell you guys, it's bizarre. I, I know that you've both looked at it a little bit. And we're going to paraphrase here. It, it basically backs up what, what Drew and I had talked about and, and what everyone assumed was that the airplane was fast and high on approach. But the bizarre thing here is... Multiple times, ATC, air traffic control, told, told them, go around, discontinue the approach, and they didn't do it. Ten miles from the runway, the pilots put the gear down. Five miles from the runway, they put the gear up. And they did scrape the runway in multiple places, as everyone assumed. And the bizarre thing with that is when they touched down, the pilots initiated a full stop. So they brought the reverse thrust levers up. They stepped on the brakes, and they realized that nothing was really happening. At that point, the pilots decided, hey, we're going to go around, meaning they put the thrust reverse levers down, increased the power, they tried to take off. And as they took off, the flight data recorder recorded that they put the gear down and then immediately brought it back up. So I don't know if they weren't quite sure where they were at in the phase of flight. I mean, it, the whole thing is just so strange. But wouldn't you, okay, so you're a pilot, so I'm sure you get a warning that the gear is not down. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, so the, the cockpit voice recorder noted all the bells and whistles going off in the cockpit. The jip whiz, which is the ground proximity warning, saying your gear isn't down, you're approaching the ground. Mm-hmm. The gear not down, overspeed, they oversped the airplane a couple times on the, the initial approach on the descent. So the whole thing is, is just beyond strange. And it, it absolutely points to pilot error. They're going to release the final investigation uh, sometime in the next year or so. But the big thing from this preliminary is that Airbus is not recommending any airworthiness directives. So all other A320 operators 
can look at this and they can say, okay, it wasn't an issue with the airplane. It was operator error. Operator error. Yeah. But then what, what did we find immediately afterwards, Drew? So immediately following the release of the report, PIA tweeted, PIA acknowledges the AAIB report and has already taken measures learning from it. An independent flight data monitoring setup established to monitor and analyze all flights. All pilots with dubious licenses will be grounded. And let me repeat that. They said dubious. They did say that. Safety is more important than any commercial interest, unquote. Well, we actually looked into this dubious license thing a little bit. Pakistan's aviation minister says one in three pilots in Pakistan have fake licenses. So a PIA spokesman said pilots who get their licenses verified would be allowed back on duty. Grounding so many pilots will affect the PIA flight operations. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, you think? Uh, we acknowledge the report and are working on our making our standards better. But there's got to be a way of vetting these. If someone gives you a laminated pilot certificate that you would think that they would do more than just accept that. Well, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, and, and Jeremy, you can hop in too. I, I think I read on Thursday or Friday that they basically acknowledged that, that they knew that there were pilots with dubious licenses. And you, you can see in, in their, their tweet here, they're talking about now they're saying safety is more important than commercial interest. But initially they were saying, well, the commercial interest is better. We need these pilots. And there were 150 some, I think 153, I, I could be mistaken, that were let go from PIA alone. I mean, that's a lot of pilots with fake licenses. It's absolutely astounding. I don't even know what to say to it, really. And, and the, that series of responses is, just violates PR 101. Jeremy, I don't know if you saw this, but I think they said that these pilots in question, that their credentials were proper. So, so th- this is what PIA said. They said the aircraft was reported as serviceable and the captain and first officer were adequately qualified and experienced to undertake said flight. That's from the accident. Yeah, that's what I read. Board. Yeah, so that's even more scary, I think. <laughs> yeah. So were they, well, I don't even want to. Did, did they have dubious licenses? It, to me, this sounds like they did not. Yeah, so I think there's more to the story. So we'll, we'll follow this, but this, this is not looking good for an airline with this on their record. I, I don't know if they'll be allowed to fly to the U.S., definitely not. And well, they, they were blocked for the longest time. And then yeah. I think it was 2017 was when the FAA finally said, you've gotten to the level of training and ma- aircraft maintenance and safety that you're allowed back in. Same with the EU. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. All right, guys, we've talked a bit on this show about what the recovery will look like, uh, the recovery from COVID-19. We've mentioned how borders will be slow to open, and once they do, it might not be for everyone. Well, some of these possible restrictions are becoming more evident this week, you guys. The governors of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut issued a joint travel advisory on Wednesday that requires anyone arriving from states with high COVID-19 rates to enter a mandatory 14-day quarantine, just like you're going to another country. Right now, there are seven states on the list. The advisory went into effect less than 12 hours after it was originally announced. Europe is set to open this week to visitors from countries that have the virus under control. The U.S. is uh, unfortunately one of the countries that is banned. Guys, your thoughts on this? I guess I probably can't complain too much that at least WestJet's giving me WestJet bucks, but the trip <laughs> to Europe that I was going to take on them is gone. Oh, and that was a 787, right? One of their it new- was, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, this is going to be Air Transat on the 321neo over and WestJet 78. Mm on the way back for the Farnborough adventure. But none of this is really surprising. Uh, my wife works in public health. She's part of the uh, University of Washington, so you see her work on the news all the time. But 
none of this is particularly surprising. It's going to continue like this indefinitely. And also, the U.S. response has been so uniquely terrible. Any any European leader would wouldn't wouldn't be worth their salt if they didn't ban us. I don't have the numbers, but as far as the developed countries, I think we're at the bottom, if not close to the bottom, in response to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I I totally agree. And uh, the domestic thing on on one side surprises me, and on the other side, it it doesn't. I I can see that there are areas of the country that definitely have it under control, at least outwardly. What what the data is showing, there are parts that don't. This is going to be really difficult because I I have essential work trips. I have probably three or four of them in New Jersey in the next three or four months, and. Right now, California is not one of those states, but if we continue on the trajectory, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go out 14 days early to do these trips and sit in a hotel room. The frustrating part, though, to me, and I, I'm not trying to get into all the, the data because we could talk about this forever, yeah. is the part of California I live in is very low. We, we have not been hit mm-hmm. at all. It's mainly the Los Angeles and San Diego area. And yeah, so. So the fact that they're going by just big geographical regions and not down more at a molecular level, if you will, down to the counties or NorCal versus SoCal. Yeah. To me, that's, I don't want to say it's a cop out because I get it. They're like, everyone is busy. Everyone's doing a lot of work, but <clears throat> it's, it, it does make it very difficult. And I'm not trying to just do leisure travel. Like I'm not trying to go to TWA hotel and, and plane spot <laughs> right now. Like yeah, the, this is about work. Yeah, this is a trip that I'm going to have to go on. And and the amount of time that it's going to take is something that I'm going to have to plan for. Honestly, until we get a vaccine, we've been talking about this, Drew. I think this is the way it's going to be around the globe for the next two years. Who knows, really? Well, yeah. And, you know, the... The response is really simple. So you know, we've seen numbers of masks. Wearing just a fabric mask can reduce the spread by 70%, 90%. They're all above 50%. So mm-hmm. if we just did that, half as many people would die. Could you just do that You know, for your fellow American, if we could just do that? And people are listening. Doug and I are not political on the show. You know, We look at the facts and then we report right from the best sources we have. And for those of you that are listening, you don't want to ma- wear a mask. It's not about you. It's about you protecting the people around you. So if you could just do that, we'll all be back in business soon. We'll all be flying again. Doug and I can go to a buffet at the Sky Club where it's laid <laughs> out and it's not packaged like we're in some hospital. <laughs> I, I think you guys have already nailed it. it this is, this is going to be how it's going to be for a long time. There's no guarantee that there'll be a that there'll be a vaccine. There's no guarantee of when it will come. Mm-hmm. It feels like a lot of the U.S. felt that there was a bargain presented to them. You stay at home mm-hmm. for three months, mm-hmm. you do right. your time, and mm-hmm. we get delivered into a post-COVID world, mm. flatten the curve. And yeah. that was great, but that was a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of what we have to do. That That's about, you know, hospital utilizations and everything else. And now we flush mm-hmm. into the the hopefully just rolling hot spots where you have now that the mask is doing a lot to help prevent if you're using it. Thank you. But um, it's it's going to continue rolling like that regionally. It's going to continue rolling that seasonally. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, not a surprise to see these state by state restrictions. But it definitely makes me as a leisure uh, traveler think a lot more closely about any time I want to I want to go to Boise for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And then Washington State, uh, where I'm based, institutes a lockdown. 
now yeah. it's two weeks just to get back in and I'm yeah. also on the essential work well, list at my job <clears throat> and now I can't go. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is two weeks on paid vacation. Yeah, that's two weeks. And so some of my friends that I have debates about this with are saying, well, the states are responsible. Okay, so there's no borders. So right now our own our country is only as good as the worst state the in response to this. Yeah. So it's not like Europe where Greece can do a great job and they can open up. You know, for us, it's mm-hmm. all or nothing. It's Florida and Maryland. You know, yeah, it has to be a team effort. I, I read a really interesting article in Bloomberg this week about New Zealand's response to it. I know Drew, mm-hmm. you and I mentioned mm-hmm. one of our listeners who said New Zealand's COVID free. Yeah. They had ve- they had very few cases. This article was saying right now that is a really good thing, but in the long term, from a travel perspective. Uh-huh. The vaccine, if it works, like Jeremy said, and when it when if it gets get released, it. if we get it, it's it's not going to be an immediate thing. And so yeah. th- this article is talking about how right now they are like they've they've quelled it and they've done a really good job, but they may end up being closed for a lot longer than what they actually expect. Um, like because of other countries, because of the. I, we're not epidemiologists. We say that all the time. The, her- the herd immunity, is that, a, is that a thing? Is it not? But yeah. this article, which was quoted or quoting several doctors, was saying that because right now the U.S. and Brazil and Southern Europe were hit so hard that it's not going to take as long of a time to actually get to that immunity level. Oh, okay, the herd immunity. E- yeah, even though it was incredibly more painful for us to get there right now from a response standpoint, from the lockdowns, from the hospital utilizations. Like it, it wasn't fun and it wasn't pretty, but there is there is growing, I don't want to say sentiment, but growing wonder if we actually will recover globally faster because oh. of I, I'm I'm just throwing no, that no, out no, there. You, no, you're making a point. So we can look at Sweden. So we can look at Sweden versus the other Nordic countries because <clears throat> they, that's the path they went, herd immunity. Mm-hmm. They didn't lock down. Yeah. I don't, I don't know so, the answer. So did the UK to start with. Yeah. And, and their, their cases are, their cases are still a lot higher than a, a lot of other areas. And so who, who knows what, who, it, it, in a way, uh, what American Airlines is doing with their capacity in July and how they're deviating so much from Delta and United, 55% versus 20 and and 25%. It's two completely different paths and no one knows what's right. And and we won't, we won't know that for a really long time, but that's, um, that it's kind of like a metaphor. What, what the airlines are doing is kind of like a metaphor for how certain countries in the world are, are, responding to well this. so for for air travel i have a solution and we 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 briefly discussed this so we know this is not going away fast right you guys so covid testing that's going to become more efficient and it's going to become faster so why don't we just have a covid test right mm-hmm. and you have a certificate or some app that says you're covid free and then you ha- get another test at the airport before you you know at check-in it'll probably be mm-hmm. faster than the security checkpoint that could solve this so I hope that people are working on that so that we can get global commerce going again, because that would be a fix. If you don't have COVID, you're good to travel. Yeah. I think New Zealand benefits from being an island, and yeah. obviously. And when you have a, now a closed, essentially a closed population, they're always going to have to reconcile until a vaccine comes with how do they go about reopening, because a big chunk of their population 
doesn't have any immunity to it. And plus, we don't actually fully know what happens with immunity yet. Mm -hmm. So immunity might last two years, a lifetime, it might last six days. So um, immunity is still a a giant, seems to be a a giant question mark. And so places like New Zealand are absolutely gambling on, short of, uh, to your suggestion, uh, Drew, of of having a uh, live, real-time test uh, Mm -hmm. that can tell you whether you have it right now. Yeah. Um, short of that, they're gambling on we stay closed until there is a long-term fix. Mm-hmm. That that is their solution because as soon as you introduce it back in, you're gonna you're gonna run those risks again, or mm-hmm. or you'd have to do something closer to Singapore where you can still let people in, but you hold them up in a hotel for two mm-hmm. weeks yeah. with intensive intensive tracking. Tracking, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I'm sure people much smarter than us are coming up with a plan for this, or I hope. I hope. Yeah. Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. All right. One. One right, final positive news. With the yeah. Case. One. One final piece of late breaking news. We're not going to talk about this too much, just for time constraints. But it was announced this weekend that the FAA is going to begin their 737 Max recertification test flights tomorrow, which is Monday, and that's June 29th, according to the Wall Street Journal. Flights are expected to last approximately three days, even though the tests are happening this week. Recertification isn't likely until closer to the end of the year, which. Drew, you and I mentioned this several weeks ago that just because the tests are happening doesn't mean that it's going to get recertified. Not necessarily a bad thing for the airlines, though, because Mm -hmm. they're not ready to take these airplanes yet. So delaying it until possibly the end of the year, and and we'll see what happens. But um, And before we actually started recording, Jeremy said, well, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Right before we started recording, we saw, or I, I saw a transcript of an email FA sent to Congress that said we're going ahead with the testing tomorrow. So open your flight radar sure. 24, open your flight yeah. aware, start <laughs> start the tracking. It it could be happening as early as tomorrow, which is when we'll release this episode. Are you are you gonna go watch for it? Uh there are there are outlets <laughs> who are interested in a photo of it if I can get one, but with the, the zoo reopens tomorrow. So oh, I absolutely have a to job getting in the way. Yeah, yeah well where where is the zoo in regards to the flight path? <laughs> Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking outside of I the mean, not, We've talked about this intersection. This we've talked about this intersection of aviation and and life. Yeah, uh, <clears> not <throat> that I've you know got it down to within a tenth of a mile or anything, but it's, <laughs> it's about uh, it's about four miles, five miles. You yeah. can get there in no traffic, which has not been a problem lately, in, in about thirteen minutes. Okay, plus or minus. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, nice. But Long- realistically, there's there's almost no way I could make it out to tomorrow. So the flight path, depending on the configuration, if they're in a southbound flow, uh, the uh, approach from the east often overflies the zoo directly. So okay. it's not out of the realm of possibility that I just have to look up. But yeah, it depends on how they're coming in. They'll, they'll be finding these out of pain, right? Uh, out of Boeing. Oh, out of Boeing. Okay. Looks like it will be a uh, Max Seven. Okay. okay. Oh, Max Seven! I didn't know that was out. Did you? I, I know Max Nine was out, right? Was it? They they've had a seven out for a little while now. I can't yeah. remember when the first flight was. I think it went eight, nine, seven, and then was going to ten. And the seven is the only one in Bo- Boeing colors. Okay. That I that I can recall right now. Anyway, I, yeah. I might be wrong about that, but yeah. Yeah, so moving on, we're talking about ultra-long haul, something I think we forgot to mention a few weeks ago. Qantas has decided to delay the purchase of its new A350s until at least the end of the year, which effectively delays nonstop flights from New York to London for a couple of years. This brings us to the existential question of the week, which is, what will the future of ultra-long haul flying look like post-COVID? 
will a lot of these flights return or has that era passed? All right, so we ran a poll. We asked all of our listeners on Twitter, do you think that ultra long haul flights will ever return at the same magnitude as pre-COVID? Expand mm-hmm. with your thoughts in the comments. We said yes in the next year, yes one to two years, yes two years more, or no. It was basically a dead tie between one to two years and two years more. Each had 45% and then 10% said no. So Jeremy, I'm curious your thoughts. Do you think that ultra long haul flying will come back? And if so, when? Yes, but I don't have a crystal ball. Realistically, these markets have proven that they have existed. Long haul flights have existed for a very long time. I mean, you can track all the way back to the strato cruiser days when you're connecting, you know, Paris and London or the DC-7, which had, uh, I think in 57, was connecting San Francisco and Paris in 23-hour nonstop flight pass. But um, <laughs> though you could upgrade apparently for $50 to a sleeper berth, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is like 400 something now. But anyway, slightly more yes, but still pass. Realistically, the markets have proven that they're there and they're worth connecting. So unless we see a fundamental shift in how business is conducted, then they're, they're going to come back. It's just a, a matter of when and what frequency. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a world in which they don't come back. It might not be for five years. It might not be for 10, but I yeah, can't imagine yeah. them not coming back. Well, right. I, I'll go to you, Drew, here in a sec, but I think if we look at the Singapore flight as an example, it left right around the financial crisis. So Singapore was flying nonstop from Newark to Singapore yeah, back in the, the 2000s. Yeah, the, the A34500. And then due to economic constraints and lack of demand and the fact that it was a full premium cabin, Lots of lots of factors and went away, and then it came back about a decade later when there was the demand for it, and when they were able to to adequately run the operations economically. So, yeah. Drew, Drew, what what do you think? So, I think in the beginning, I don't know about the Singapore flight because I know that flight is very popular, but just like United's flight from San Francisco to Singapore, we may see a one stop via Hong Kong like we saw in the old days. So, you might see more tag flights. Mm-hmm. Might see more connecting through Haneda instead of Narita to Hong Kong to get people to Hong Kong. But I think these are going to come back, even if you look at COVID and people's concerns about safety. So if you're concerned about traveling and COVID-19 is still out there, wouldn't you rather just take one flight, mm-hmm. no connection, you have less contact with people, you can be yeah. there faster, especially for business travelers. I, I think it's going to come back, I would say in about two years. Those flights are more expensive though. The nonstops are more expensive and everyone is saying that yeah. business is going to be the last to return if it even does return to the levels that it has. So will the demand be there for, for that? specific markets? Yes. And yeah. Jeremy, you know, you're saying with 160 seats, that's not a big lift to fill business tra- 160 business travelers from Singapore to New York to hubs of business. Yeah. Maybe it won't be daily. Uh, maybe, maybe just five days a week to begin. Yeah. I, I could see a, I feel like there's a marker for that. Personally, I'm pretty bullish. I, I, I actually think that business travel will return, maybe not immediately to the same levels, but after doing a bunch of zoom calls, I, I can tell you, my colleagues and I are ready to get back on the road. And I know it comes down to budgets and there was a poll uh, that someone ran with a bunch of Fortune 500 CEOs and what, 51% of them said that business travel will never return to pre-COVID levels. I don't know if I believe that. I think after four or five years, we'll be back. But, But here's the thing. So Drew, you and I talked about this in our decade prediction episode. Yeah, I think that we're gonna see um, a, a lower densification of the business class cabin. I think that airlines are going to start taking some seats out 
Uh-huh. I think premium economy is going to become the next the wave, way. the new business class. I, I'm not saying yeah. lay flats are going to go away completely, but right. look at airlines like Delta. They were already taking on average about 25% of their business class seats out during their retrofits in favor of more premium <clears throat> seating. I'll tell you right now, United is going to start um, San Francisco, Beijing, and, uh, you know, as soon as the governments agree. Mm-hmm. That, that's all business. <laughs> That's yeah. not leisure. That's Apple. You know, that's all those manufacturers in China. So that's a business market that, you know, th- there is that demand for us to restart service. Yeah. Jeremy, before we go on, we got to get something out of the way, Doug. And Jeremy, I gave you a preview, but one of our listeners and you got listeners, I'm sorry about bringing Biscoff back, but we just need to accept that every other episode we need to talk about it. So Greg on Twitter, he made a uh, Biscoff cheesecake. <laughs> what are your guys thoughts on that? It looked really delicious. I like, you know, like we mentioned just before we get going, uh, we need to cut this nice and short and quick because I got <laughs> things to do now uh, and it's make that cheesecake. Uh, I don't know who of you, I don't know if anyone else got in. I think we were talking about uh, Ian Petrick from Flight Radar. Okay. Uh, uh, had picked up that, you know, metric ton of, uh, of goodness for $15. Yeah, shipping mm-hmm. pallet and LD4 of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of uh, Biscoff. And uh, I followed him on that. So, there's plenty of opportunity to make some awesomeness. Well, and Drew, you mentioned you're going to try it with Stroopwafel, right? Yeah, everyone. I got three days off. Um, nothing to do because you know Maryland's not completely open yet. So have a bunch of Biscoff uh, cookies from flights that I haven't eaten. So I'm just going to pound them up, make a crust. I have Greg's recipe from Twitter. So thank you, Greg. The cheesecake itself that he made looked awesome. It no, was just, it looked, the crust yeah, it was a little flat. Really good. So uh, let me see. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and pit Biscoff and Daleman Stroop against on each, each other. other. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's funny, Drew, because my daughter, um, she's been having trouble going to sleep at night. So we've started this thing where we give her a treat in the morning if she goes to sleep without us telling her to in the evenings. And this morning, I put her basket out and then went and brushed my teeth, and I came back. Mind mind you, there's Snickers, M and M's, lots of lots of really good sweets in this basket. The two things she chose. Stroopwafel and Biscoff of all the days after we, I, I woke up to all these, these Twitter notifications about what Greg <laughs> right. is doing and, and you yeah. guys, you guys, East coasters talking about it while I was still asleep of all the days. That's what, that's what she shows. So it's pretty funny. I absolutely love them. Uh, part of me was a little bit disappointed when other airlines started adding them in because to me that was synonymous with flying on Delta. You flew Delta, okay. you got the Biscoff. And I remember one time, making a it was at the end of a flight uh, at the end of the day and so the plane was done for the day the crew was done for the day and uh they're shutting everything down and i mentioned to the flight attendant on the way out I'm like, you know I'll just take whatever biscoff you have left she goes to the rear galley she pulls out all the biscoff left, <laughs> and there were you know the giant sleeve and so i, I think that took about a a year because the normally i eat things and they last five minutes but with this it felt like it was also somewhat of an aviation collectible, yeah. <laughs> which I also do. And so I had a hard time getting rid of them. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've listened to some of the last episodes, but I found an ATA Biscoff from uh, 2003. Yeah. Don't eat it. Yeah. I'm not going to open it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saved it just for the, uh, just for the packaging. Um, all right. So go ahead. Jeremy. Oh, I was going to say what was really interesting. I went to the San Francisco, the SFO museum a few years back and they collect food packets and unless they can guarantee that it's completely sealed, 
they end up taking a lot of the food out of mm. the packet. Yeah, so mm. it doesn't go bad. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly because okay. eventually they'll explode. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah. They're meant to be opened at altitude. So. That was a good five minutes on Biscoff. Um, <laughs> we, we could do the whole show. <laughs> All right. We're, uh, we're running short on time. Uh, a couple topics that we didn't really get to this week, and maybe, Drew, you and I can, can touch these in the next couple of weeks, but I just yeah. I want the listeners to know we're, we're not deaf to any of this going on. So just a couple quick topics. It was announced this week that Delta might furlough up to 2,500 pilots. So we'll, we'll check back on that in the next yeah. couple of weeks. American is removing capacity limits on their flights. They're going from, uh, I think they were saying 70%, 70%, although it sounded like they weren't doing that in practice, to on July 1st, no capacity limits. Uh, from a, a service standpoint, from a fleet news, Air France retired their last A380 this week. Uh, their entire fleet of A380s. BA also this morning received their first 787-10 nonstop flight from Charleston to London. And then Comac, our, our friends over in China, the ARJ-21 the ARJ was delivered to China Eastern, China Southern, Air China this week. So lots of topics. Unfortunately, we weren't able to really get to them, but we want, want you guys to know that we're keeping our, our thumb on the pulse of the aviation news. All right, guys, really sorry that we didn't get to the ultra long haul discussion with Jeremy this week. It ended up being a lot longer of a discussion than we were planning on, which is not a bad thing. The discussion was too good to be able to cut down. So Drew and I just talked about it and with Jeremy's permission, because he's, he's our guest, right, Jeremy? Sure. Yeah. With, with Jeremy's I'm not going to permi- say no, this is great. <laughs> yeah. With, with Jeremy's permission, we're actually going to air the ultra long haul discussion next week. So guys, check back in. Uh, really good discussion that we just had with Jeremy about ultra long haul flying and his experience on Singapore. So check back next week and, and we'll have that for you guys. There's never a dull episode these days with everything going on. Doug, I long for the time when you and I used to debate what was better, why you sat in a bulkhead seat <laughs> uh, while I sat further back in the cabin so I could enjoy the cabin drama. But for now, uh, thanks everyone for joining us. And remember that this is your show as much as it is ours. So follow us on Twitter at Next Trip Podcast and let us know what's on your mind so that we can talk about it. You can also email us at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com or leave us a review wherever you download your post- podcasts. We're constantly trying to improve and want to talk to you about what you want to hear. Uh, thanks, Jeremy, for coming on the show this week. Uh, anything else you want to tell us? And can you tell us how people can find it, Can find you? Yeah, thanks so much for having This has been an absolute blast. Uh, hope uh, going long was uh, as much fun for you as it was for me. Um, if you want to look me up, you can come to Woodland Park Zoo right here in Seattle. We open up on, uh, <laughs> we open up on Wednesday and... <laughs> we need your money Uh, (laughs) or I won't be a thing here much longer. Uh, That's not, that's not staying in, but um, you can uh, find me on Twitter at photo J Juliet Delta Lima JDL. And you can find me on Instagram at the same photo JDL Juliet Juliet Delta Lima two is in the number. And then uh, you could look me up on Flickr and find all 43,000 photos uh, there. Jeremy, I'll echo Drew's comments. It was great having you. You're welcome back anytime. And yes, it was great talking for this long. Drew and I love talking Geek stuff, so no need to apologize. To our listeners, thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. 
Find us on Twitter at NextTripPodcast or OfficerWayfinder.com slash podcast. Cool. Anything? Nothing? Uh, Yeah, maybe I'll see it tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I won't. I don't know. Yeah.